If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 9. I think, I'm, I'm, I'm not positive, but I think yesterday afternoon when it reached uh, the wind chill, the official wind chill in Sioux Falls was 47 below, I think that's the coldest wind chill that I've ever actually been in the midst of in my life. Uh, we lived in Canada. We certainly would every year you'd go down to 40. 42 below, but in our part of Canada, out in British Columbia, where I was in high school, at 40 or 42 below, it's always dead calm. And the smoke just sort of hovers over the houses, and there's, there's, so there's no wind chill. And my father, when he used to visit uh, this part of the country from up there, he would always say, so this is a compliment to us, he would say, between your 40-mile-an-hour wind chill and an actual 40 below zero, he said, give me the actual 40 below zero every time. Because the wind blows that cold in every crevice and every crack in, uh, in your clothing and so forth in a way that the still cold air does not. So... Uh, as was already mentioned, uh, welcome on this uh, warming uh, compared to yesterday, but still very, very cold and uh, miserable uh, morning in the, in the breeze out there. We are in uh, Mark chapter 9, and the thrust of what we call the uh, transfiguration is what we've been singing about already all morning long. In other words, these, these songs that we sang, all uh, focusing in on the majesty and the importance of Jesus, is what this paragraph is about in Mark 9. It's what the disciples were supposed to carry away from the actual experience, and it's what we are supposed to carry away from our consideration of that experience. If you're visiting with us, we're making our way straight through uh, Mark's gospel. Last week we were in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, which was a hinge between the preceding paragraph and the one we're in now. And uh, especially fast-forwarding into the one we're in now, so we've covered a little bit of this material last week. We at least referred to it, and now we'll come back to it and look at it in just a little bit more detail. But just before I have you stand and we read that together, uh, just one other announcement-related thing. We, we will have to pick up chairs this morning, not only in here after the service, but also across the way because there's no evening service. And so those of you who are like around the chair committee and know what the setup uh, for the school is like, uh, you be sure you go over there and help those chairs get down and the tables get set up uh, as per usual and we'll very, very much appreciate that. So those with uh, some experience of tearing down and setting up, if you'd be 
willing to be a part of that this morning, we'd very much appreciate that. Um, Let's uh, stand together. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 8. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them. Now, as we'll see when we get to it, the them there is not Peter, James, and John. The cloud overshadows Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. So a cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the one shepherding us. You, the Lord, the creator of all things, the sustainer of the universe, are the one shepherding us. And therefore, we shall not lack anything that we need to get by and to survive in this world. You lay us down in pleasant places, the psalmist says, in green pastures. You lead us beside quiet waters, and you restore our souls. And Lord, we often need our souls restored in the midst of the trials and the tribulations of life, whether they be health-related, whether they be relationship-related, whether they be related to our distress over the broad situation in the world, you assure us that you have the ability, the desire, to restore our souls. You have the ability to lead us in the paths of righteousness, and you do this for the sake of your name, that we might glorify 
your name. As John Piper puts it over and over again, glorify your name by being satisfied in you. That you are most glorified in your people when they are most satisfied in you. And Lord, to that end, you lead us in paths of righteousness. Lord, when we find ourselves, as we've already referred, in very, very troubled, troubling, frightening times, the valley of death's shadow, may you give us the perspective, the understanding, the outlook such that we will not be afraid of the evil circumstances that we are in, the evil forces that may be around us. Not because they are not intimidating, for they are. Not because they would not be overwhelming to anyone, for again, they are. But because you are with us, your rod, and your staff. These things, they comfort us. And you lay out before us a table filled of provision, even in the face of a culture filled with opposition and enemies. You anointed your King Jesus' head with oil, caused his cup to overflow, And therefore, for him and all of us who are in him, it is a certain thing that your goodness and your loving kindness will follow us all the days of our lives and that our future is fixed as this, that we through Christ shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Father, we thank you for these promises, and we thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've mentioned many, many times now since we've started into Mark's gospel, uh, Rodney Decker, who writes the little commentary in the Baylor Handbook of the Greek New Testament, Rodney Decker's summarization of what the Gospel of Mark is about. He boils it down, you remember, into those two questions. Who is Jesus? And what does Jesus want or require from his followers? So who is Jesus? And what is it that Jesus wants or requires from his followers? Now, the the story of the transfiguration is like a poster child paragraph to make Rodney Decker's point. For it just simply is designed, the story, to answer those two questions, giving far more attention to the first question, who is Jesus? 
as did the songs we sang this morning, give the bulk of their attention to the question, who is Jesus? Well, he's this glorious person who we're singing about. That's who he is, and we'll see how Mark portrays that. But then it closes, the final verse closes very clearly with the answer to the second question. And that is this. What does he require from those who would follow him? That they listen to him in all the fullness of what that means. So the bulk, again, of our text is about who is Jesus. And it's so important that we remind ourselves of this. Because, as we say week by week by week, but you can't say it too often, we live in a culture in which we are given the wrong impression as to the accurate answer to that question every single day, right? Our cultural answer is, look, Jesus is no big deal. He's a, he's a far smaller thing than the 2024 presidential election. He is a far smaller thing than climate change. And to illustrate just how absurd our culture is, and it truly is absurd, he is a far smaller thing than the NFL playoffs and Super Bowl that are beginning to unwind themselves through the last half of January and into the first part of February. But if you are watching airtime and money spent and attention given, you would not get that impression at all. You would get the impression that Jesus is tiny in comparison to these things. Now, I mentioned that last week's text, Mark 9, 1, was like a pivot between the previous paragraph and our paragraph. One, let me just jump back. One reference back to the previous paragraph, you see, because when you underestimate Jesus, what Mark is warning us about in chapters 8 and 9 is that is an ominously grave mistake to make. Remember how he put it, Mark 8, 38, But whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. So to underestimate Jesus in word and deed is portrayed at the end of Mark chapter 8 as a spiritually fatal mistake. An absolutely fatal mistake. And just why that is, is our text for this morning. Um, 
it's very hard to take Mark 8.38 seriously. It just is, as we've already said. Because we are surrounded in our culture by voices that don't take Jesus seriously at all. The voices of our universities don't take Jesus seriously at all. The voices of our cultural influencers do not take Jesus seriously at all. And as we noted last week, these voices come at us every single day, compellingly, creatively, and relentlessly. State our thesis for this morning this way. We're called to listen carefully to the glorious Christ. So now I've in, in, inverted the order of the text. The last thing is listen carefully. The first three points of the text are all related to the glorious Christ. The glorious Christ. Uh, we are called to listen carefully to the glorious Christ. Number one. We are to carefully consider the symbolism of the glorious Christ. This is verses 2 and 3. Uh, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. So remember, back in verse 1, some of you will not see death until you see the kingdom of God. Six days later, we find out exactly what he was talking about. The some of you turns out to be three of you, Peter, James, and John. And now they're up on this high mountain, and Jesus is transfigured, before them. They are the audience for this event. And through them, we're the audience for this event. But they're the first audience of this event. So it's for the sake of Peter, James, and John that this symbolic representation of Jesus takes place with them alone on this high mountain. And commentators debate uh, what mountain it is. The three leading candidates are Mount Hermon, which is by far the tallest in the region, Mount Tabor, which isn't very tall at all, but seems tall because everything around it is much, much lower, and then Mount Moran, which contextually in the flow of the text probably has the leading uh, amount of evidence in its direction. But it, though it's relatively tall, it wouldn't seem tall because all of the mountains around it are fairly tall as well. But in any case, it doesn't really matter because the idea of up on the mountain alone is that they are in isolation and they are given this important vision. He was transfigured before them. Uh, now the idea of there is simply one moment Jesus is just who Jesus has been in all of their experience with him, right? He just looks like average, everyday Jesus. Uh, the Jesus who, you know, when they're walking through Samaria, gets tired 
and rests at the well. Uh, well, the disciples run into Sychar to buy some food. That's very ordinary, human, everyday Jesus. Well, that's the Jesus that walked up on the mountain with them. And now they're praying, and suddenly that Jesus becomes transfigured Jesus. That Jesus becomes, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, the worship team this morning reread, we referred to it last week, but they read it again this morning, Romans chapter, or, or Daniel chapter 9. Now, this is the text that was meant, and almost certainly would have, entered the disciples' minds instantly as Jesus is transfigured. And I looked, and thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, Daniel 7, 9. His clothing, meaning the Ancient of Days, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair on his head like wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Now, it's plain that in Daniel 7-9, the Ancient of Days is God himself. It's Yahweh, the creator of all things. That's who is dazzling white. Four verses later, when you get to verse 13, and I saw in the night visions, Daniel 7, 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now that also definitely would seem to be a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, one like the Son of Man. But now he's approaching the ancients of days. In the symbol in in, in Mark 9, he seems to be the ancient of days. But in the very context that that's quoted in Daniel, he's also distinguishable from the ancient of days and approaching him. That's true. That's true. But it's also what you find throughout the Old Testament. That strange combination of things, right? We just came through Advent season. Um, Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgins shall conceive and bear a son. Bear you a human child. And his name will be called Emmanuel. His name will be called God with us. 
His name will be called God with us. At the other end of that major section in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, the fulfillment of the promise to David. A king will come, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, but then Mighty God, Everlasting Father. That is purely divine names. Yes. So he's a, he's a human being, distinguishable from God, and he is absolutely divine. He's mighty God. He's the everlasting Father. Now, no one explains this in plainer language, if you could call it plain, than the Apostle John, right, in the beginning of John's Gospel, when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There you have it. Same image in all of these cases. He's with God. That is, he's distinguishable from God. But he, at the same time, somehow is God. And that's the image being portrayed. That's the reality being portrayed on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus, who is he? Well, he's the Ancient of Days. He's the Son of Man. But the focus here is he's the Ancient of Days. He's God. He is supremely important over all things. There's no one remotely like him. There should be no influence in our lives remotely as powerful as his influence, given who he is. That's the idea. Secondly, we are to carefully consider the significance of Moses and Elijah as relates to the glory of Christ. Verse 4, And there appeared with them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, the traditional view, which many modern scholars, you probably even see most modern scholars, reject for a variety of relatively unconvincing alternatives. Uh, The traditional view was the view of John Calvin, well, that doesn't make it right. No, it doesn't make it right. But Calvin does have the reputation after 500 years of being the most sustainable commentary on the Old and New Testament, probably in the history of the church. And so you don't want to pass him off lightly. And as we'll see in a moment, his, his interpretation here of what's going on really fits the rest of the New Testament way better than anybody else's. Uh, for Cal, here's all, all the Calvin says. Is Calvin just says, look, um, this is Elijah and Moses, and although Elijah wasn't uh, a writing prophet, he did turn Israel 
back to the Lord in a uniquely powerful way that most of the writing prophets didn't. And therefore, he's allowed to stand for the prophets, and Moses stands for the law, which is one of Calvin's little favorite words, schenectady. That is, it's a summary of the entire teaching of the Old Testament. So when you see Elijah and Moses here, what do you see? You see Jesus in dialogue with the entire testimony of the Hebrew Bible, which was Jesus' own understanding of his relationship to the Hebrew Bible. Remember how he put it to his companions on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. Luke 24, 44 to 47. Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Now listen very carefully to this. That everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That is to understand the Old Testament in its totality. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. And, and, and that's, that's the story that the entire Old Testament is aimed at getting to. That's the story that Elijah and Moses represent. Represent. Now, Mark doesn't tell us what Elijah and Moses and Jesus were talking about, nor does Matthew, but Luke does. Luke gives a brief summary of what they were talking about. And here's how he summarizes it. Luke 9, verse 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him. This is a parallel account of Luke to the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to be accomplished at Jerusalem. Now, in the Greek text, the word for departure there is exodus. The key redemptive event of the entire Old Testament. They were talking about Jesus' exodus. They were talking about the centerpiece of Jesus' saving activity. Through his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, all of which, by the way, did indeed happen in Jerusalem. Prophet Malachi, very similarly, marries together Moses and Elijah as he thinks about the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. Uh, Malachi 4, 4 and 5. Malachi said, uh, 
the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horab for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Remember the law of Moses, and I will send you Elijah before the great and powerful day of the Lord. Well, here is Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And remember, it's all things written in the law. Moses wrote a lot more than just about the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, the law opens the law opens with an account of the creation of the universe, the creation of all things. Uh, the entire order of reality is addressed in the law. And Paul in the New Testament makes it plain that Jesus will turn out to be the sum, not just of the Old Testament, but of all that the Old Testament that it talks about, which would include the entire purpose of the whole created order. And Paul just says that right out loud in Ephesians 1, verse 10. I'll read into it from verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of the times to unite all things in him. What does he mean by all things? All things in heaven, all things on earth. Now that again is a figure of speech called a merism. All things in heaven and all things on earth mean everything. Absolutely everything in all existence will end up finding its purpose in this one person. Jesus. In him. That's how Christians are supposed to think of Jesus. That's how Christians are supposed to think of Jesus. And that's where we tend to miss the mark by a mile with great regularity. Thirdly, that focus is right here in the text of how we miss the text by a mile. We are to carefully consider how easily we underestimate the glorious Christ. Carefully consider how we easily underestimate the, more, the, the glorious Christ. Uh, verses 5 and 6. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say because he was terrified. Uh, now that last little piece, you know, most all that Mark knows about the life of Jesus, he likely, according to the church tradition, he got from Peter. So Mark is a great Peter fan. He has no desire to throw Peter under the bus. Uh, so this is a tough moment for Mark because he's recording uh, Peter uh, you know, making a, a, a major theological gaffe 
um, embarrassingly so. But he, he, he defends Peter a little bit. He said, now he said this because he was terrified. So let's cut Peter a little slack. Right? He didn't know, he didn't know what to say. So this is what came flying out of his mouth. Let's make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Sort of giving Jesus prime of place, you know, he puts him first. One for you, you're number one. But you're right there, you know, Moses and then Elijah. Um, I collected baseball cards when I was a kid. I imagine a number of you did. So you'd get the you'd always get your cards recording the previous season, right? So you get your you get your baseball cards that you're collecting in baseball season of 1969 are the cards that represent the activity of that player in 1968. That's how it works. So in 1969 um, I'm 11 years old, and one of the cards that they that they would come out with would have three top three home run hitters, top three home run hitters uh, of the year, and I took particularly a great interest in that because one of those was on the Chicago Cubs, though unfortunately he was in third place. It was a dismal year for home runs in the major leagues. Uh, so we could have a quiz about who's on that card, but we won't. We won't. Uh, Willie McCovey led the league in home runs that year with 36. In second place was Richie Allen for the Philadelphia Phillies in the National League with 34. In third place was Ernie Banks for the Chicago Cubs, Mr. Cub, with 32. And not on the card, but deserving of great honorable mention was another Cub, my favorite Cub, Billy Williams, who had 30 home runs that year. See, there they are. These are the great power hitters of the National League from 1968. You see, Peter... Peter is sort of doing that with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He's putting them on the same baseball card. And that's not okay. That is actually blasphemous. Because they're, they're not in anything like the same category with each other. We do the same thing all the time in modern scholarship. I looked at, I was reading something recently where Jesus and St. Francis of Assisi and Savonarola were all listed as three very spiritual people. Well, in their defense, both Francis of Assisi and Savonarola would have said, that's blasphemy. You don't get our names off of that list. That's that's stupid. Very often in broader cultural circles, right, it'll be Jesus and Socrates and maybe Tolstoy. Same 
Same issue. Same issue. But see, we live in the culture that this is happening. And every time you hear something like that, read something like that, the message is Jesus is really not that big. Jesus really is not that big. And there's nothing easier for us than to begin to adopt that way of thinking ourselves in subtle ways. Fourth and finally, we are to be careful, we are to carefully consider how important it is to listen obediently to the glorious Christ. So now we've finally changed questions. All the first three points. Glory of Jesus, glory of Jesus, glory of Jesus. Point number three, what does the Lord expect from the followers of Jesus that they listen to him? So a cloud overshadows them, verse 7, and the voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. No mention Moses. No mention of Elijah. They don't get to be on the same baseball card with Jesus. This is my beloved son. No mention of Moses. No mention of Elijah. They're not like Francis of Assisi and Savonarola on the same line with Jesus. They're not Tolstoy or Socrates on the same line of Jesus. No. The view of heaven is, no, that's absurd. That's actually blasphemous. No, the cloud overshadows Jesus and Moses and Elijah and the voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. Now this cloud that overshadows Jesus, remember, in Luke, what are they talking about? Oh, they're talking about Jesus' exodus. Well, interestingly enough, and I do not think at all haphazardly, randomly, or unintentionally, what happens right at the close of the book of Exodus? Well, they finish building the tabernacle finally. And what happens when the tabernacle is finished? A cloud overshadows it. And what was the significance of the tabernacle? Glory of God dwells there. Like nowhere on earth. The unique presence of God on earth in this tabernacle that the entire second half of the book of Exodus, for the most part, was at pains to describe the materials, the construction, the ministries involved, Here's how the book of Exodus closes. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up a screen of the gate of the court and Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord 
filled the tabernacle. On the Mount of Transfiguration, where is the unique presence of God on earth? It's Jesus. And like at the end of the book of Exodus, a cloud comes over, but this time there's an admonition that comes from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, those of you who are involved on Sunday night know that not too long ago, it's been a few months ago now, I guess a number of months ago, time gets by, but Pastor Don just finished a whole series on the book of Exodus, and that last paragraph is where we ended up, and now we're in the book of Deuteronomy. And just last, just last Sunday night, we finished off Deuteronomy chapter 4 and started into Deuteronomy chapter 5. And Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, records this message. Message that came out of the clouds, really. But use this time a combination of four verbs, four verbal forms. They're not all full verbs. Some of them are infinite. One of the last one's an infinitive. First one's an imperative. But here's how they go. So here's how they go. Verb number one. Hear. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. So what does it mean to hear, though, really? Real hearing, what happens? And you shall learn them. Second verb. You shall learn them. And, and this is where the English translation makes it sound like it's just, well, the two verbs are really there, I guess. And be careful, be careful, that is, keep, keep them, and then in a little infinitive tacked on, to do them. Now, all four of those things, are all condensed, and you're not really hearing the voice from heaven in Mark 9, unless you hear all four of those things. Hear Him. That is, hear Him, learn from Him, keep what He says so as to do it. That is, let your life be shaped by what you learn from Him. Write down to the details of what you actually do. That's why in the book of Deuteronomy, he takes four verbs to say it. Lest we misunderstand what a big thing is involved when somebody says, Hear! I mean here as to really learn. I mean here as to really keep in mind what you've heard. I mean to really keep in mind what you've heard so as to learn it, so as to do it. And that's what he expects from us. That's what he expects from us. We are to listen to Jesus as the one 
in whom all things in heaven and earth have been united. No cultural words rise to the same level as Jesus' words to us. No political words rise to the same level as Jesus' words. No family words rise to the same level as Jesus' words. No cultural traditions rise to the level of Jesus' words. There's no one like Jesus. There's no one even close. Listen to him accordingly. And then the final image in the text, which is very, very powerful. Verse 8. I'll read into it, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, that is, Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Voice came from the cloud, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Hear him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anybody with them. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. When you look around for who is supposed to be the ultimate authority in your life, be sure that when you look around, and the question is, who should I have my ultimately serious allegiance to? Be sure, very sure, that your answer is, Only Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we have again to have your words, to have these stories given to us, images laid before us. Uh, Father, I ask that we would be enabled by your spirit to take these things to heart in Jesus' name. Amen.